Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey guys, this is Santosh, your Peds infectious disease doctor and researcher, no longer after dark. And it's Dr. Ward, I'm the ER physician, almost always <laughs> after dark. So right before we do get started, I know ordinarily this would be a journal club thing, but since it has nothing to do with medicine anyway, you guys, there's a dog Tinder. Uh, <laughs> I saw wow. this. Yes. Like you can swipe through and be like, oh, I like this dog. Let me click borrow it for a while. And it's a lot. It's actually based with a lot of shelter dogs. So you can take them. You can play with them. It's supposed to get you attached enough that you maybe want to adopt a shelter dog. So the concept is great. I just like the idea that there's an app that is dog tinder. <laughs> and appearances do matter. I'm sorry. I mean, the dog may have an excellent personality and... <laughs> There's been there's been several I've looked at that have DTF in their profile, which is down to fetch. <laughs> so last week we spoke about an introduction to traditional Chinese medicine, and Dr. Santosh and I were able to kind of go over a little bit of the history and the philosophy, and now that we've brought you up to speed with 3,000 years of history in the course of an hour... <laughs> Dr. Ward has joined us, and we're going to actually go over the treatments that make Chinese medicine unique. And once again, joining us through recording will be my interview with our expert, Dr. Kevin McNamee, who is a chiropractor and traditional Chinese medicine practitioner based out of Los Angeles. The last time we spoke, we went over 
his training, which is he, he did do a residency both in the U.S. for chiropractic as well as in Dalian in China for a, well, for traditional Chinese medicine. And I was able to get a little bit of a unique perspective talking to him because I myself was fortunate enough to spend approximately four months living in China and training in Chinese medicine as well. So there will be videos associated with this episode, and we do have our own YouTube channel, which we're going to start making use of. I will include the link in the show notes, so if you'd like to see any of the techniques that we're talking about today, please just click the links below. <laughs> Josh, do you still use today in your current practice anything you learned from uh, your trip to China? In my current practice, most of what I use has to do with philosophy. I do a lot of palliative care and hospice work, and that is where the whole body and complementary models really do very well with chronic conditions, things that won't get better, and it gives me a great resource to be able to refer people out to knowing about it. However, I'm not really using acupuncture or cupping in my practice because I'm a hospitalist. I guess the closest I get to acupuncture is doing lumbar punctures, and it's just <laughs> one needle, which is not in for very long. Oh, yeah, and you definitely don't <laughs> want to light that on fire with moxie. <laughs> Even though the two approaches can complement each other, Western medicine and uh, Asian medicine, the overlap in treatment modality is thin because it's based on different models of how the human body works. Actually, it's hard enough to master one medical philosophy and get really good at that. Now, what we learned last week is that the ultimate goal of traditional Chinese medicine focuses treatment on restoring balance. So why don't we check back in with Dr. McNamee and see how you actually restore somebody's balance if they're out of whack, because that's really what this week is going to be about. So we'll start by learning from him how you restore balance, and then let's talk about diagnosis with him a little bit. So, Dr. McNamee, please take it away. How do you restore this balance if you're overbalanced in one way or another? First is the practitioner needs to evaluate what is out of balance with that patient and they go through a series of diagnostic approaches, everything from history with the patient, asking them a series of questions that any practitioner would do. Second was the look at key indicators, such as the person's affect, the shen as they refer to it. You have the um, tongue as one of the diagnostic instruments that the tongue will change depending on what happens with the process. Uh, pulse diagnosis, palpation with their hands, uh, range of motion, all those things give the practitioner indication as to whether it fits into one scenario or another, and then that gives you a treatment approach. That treatment, the therapies that are available in traditional Chinese medicine historically have been acupuncture, which is the insertion of a very, very fine needle into the uh, body. Herbology, which uses natural therapies uh, that's found in nature that are ingested. Breathing techniques, meditation, tai chi, qigong, all those come together with soft tissue work, stretching, lifestyle changes. All those are part of Asian medicine. You mentioned the tongue as one of the diagnostic tools. Usually that's one that certainly in Western medicine we tend to ignore. We look, if there's nothing in the back of the throat, 
we say, okay, mouth's all right. How is the tongue used in diagnosis in traditional Asian medicine? When I was going through my training in Asian medicine, it was the time when the AIDS virus was pretty much not a very treatable kind of condition as compared to what we have today. We have more options. And you would see the patients come in who are suffering from HIV, AIDS situations. And you would see that tongue change over time as a very dramatic example of how the tongue does reflect the health of the body. So from a Western type MD allopathic approach, you would look at the tongue, okay, it looks fine, I don't see anything major on it. But the devil's in the details. And if you start looking for the subtleties of the tongue, you can see that there's certain other pathologies going on. Are there any other organs that Asian medicine will pay more attention to than Western for such as the tongue? Pulse that's used to palpate the radial pulse that's in the wrist. Mm -hmm. They'll look at the, what's referred to as the shen. The shen is, uh, po poetically put, it's the light that shines from one's eyes when they're truly awake. You ever walked in and saw a patient where they're just quite not there, lights are on but no one's home, or they're drug-induced, or they're daydreaming, or they're not, they're sleep deprived, their eyes are not clear. And by using the eyes, you can see what else may be going internally with the patient. Looking at the face, the shen, their affect, all that gives an indication. All that leads to hopefully a diagnosis that the practitioner will again apply the Chinese medicine approach of treatment. There you go. There's a lot of different ways of restoring balance. And I actually was very interested in the diagnostic methods. Now, we, we certainly practice physical diagnosis in, in our hospitals, but I have to tell you, I don't think I've ever looked at a tongue nearly as closely as a practitioner of Chinese medicine does. Sure, and this is one of these things that is really tough to reconcile with Western medicine, you know. Any practitioner of Western medicine um, will say that, oh man, if you're saying you're trying to link one part of the tongue with the liver or the heart, no, this is this does not work, absolutely not. And the truth is we have not studied this phenomenon very well at all, partially because it's a bit of an art, as Dr. McNamee said. Any good doctor, and this is, this is a misconception, I, I should say this straight, Hey, guys, every good doctor should start with a history and physical. And a thorough physical exam and a thorough history will tell 90% of the story and will, a lot of the time, make the diagnosis for you. But I, I've never heard of anything equivalent of reading the tongue to understand the, how the liver is doing or how the heart's doing. Well, actually, I have. The only thing close to, to what we're talking about here is, remember when we were medical students, when these gray-haired, older, wiser professors were doing bedside teaching? And that, have, you, have they ever taught you that um, you can look under the tongue for signs of jaundice that may not show up in people with, you know, different skin tones? Oh, and sure. under the tongue is a good place to look for um, also anemia in people with, again, different skin tones. People with darker skin, sometimes you can't tell that the skin is jaundiced or that, you know, it's someone is pale because, you know, that person isn't pale. 
Yeah, and the same idea is looking at the nail beds because the skin right. is thin there, and right. you can examine the changes in skin tone there. In this sense, I completely agree, absolutely. And you can certainly see fasciculations or little jumps of muscle twitches in cases like Lou Gehrig's disease. Now to loop back into the 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 Chinese diagnostic method. And again, we spoke about the five elements. So some of the examples in my textbook say if the tongue should become red, it indicates a heat syndrome. Whereas if it's pale, it may indicate a chi or blood deficiency. Well, in someone who's anemic, absolutely, the tongue would be pale, but that's not something that we look for. Mm -hmm. And then they look at the tongue coating, which could be greasy in appearance, which would indicate, as we spoke in the last episode, about dampness as a condition. So it, it's still a consistent method of diagnosis, just not one that we have any frame of reference for making sense of. We talk about, so the tongue was something that was very, very new to me as the level of... I guess detail. Detail. Yeah. And the other one, which, again, man, Chinese, you know, Chinese practitioners are poetic, did you? I couldn't believe when he was talking about the shen, that that concept of the light and life in somebody's eyes, and you can tell when they're sick because that light just sort of goes out and glazes over. And how many demented or post-stroke or just chronically old patients have you seen that do have kind of that dull glisten where they're they're present, but they're maybe not really living? Yeah, yeah. and I think he has a more specific take on this than we would talk about in Western medicine. You know, to us, I think we do the same thing. We read at a glance that, oh, something's wrong here. This guy's, this person's not okay. And we that's a, kind of the, we have a word for that from the German that's called the Gestalt. Um, kind of taking in the whole view of a person as they first walk into the room. I'm sure you guys have both done it with the first glance you have of a patient as they come in. Um, but yeah, he seems to have a much more specific read on it versus just a general sensation of, oh, this person is well or not. The next question, of course, would be, you know, we've talked about kind of diagnosis. Other than that, they do pulse just like we do. They listen just like we do. We still use a lot of the same tools. Mm -hmm. But you'd think this is traditional Chinese medicine. So maybe everybody in China does this. Or, are, you know, are they going in? Because we have people in the Western world who make use of acupuncture. Do we also have people in China who say, no, I demand to see a Western doc only, you know, what's what's the awareness of traditional Chinese medicine? So let's check back in and see what Dr. McNamee has to say about general attitudes in China. Spoiler alert, you might be surprised. Thanks, BuzzFeed. <laughs> China, do most people in China have some awareness of the herbs and herb cures and acupressure points they can use themselves rather than going to the doctor, or do they say... You know, here's the Chinese version of chicken soup, and if that doesn't work, head to the hospital. Great question. I was quite surprised that the old adage, the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence, was very true in China as well. They looked at the United States' use of antibiotics and surgery as the begin and end all of treatment. They wanted to embrace that. 
to where we were in clinic and one of the nurses was handing out antibiotics to the people that were coming in as if they were candy. And we shared with the nurse as well as the medical doctor there the hazards and the resistant strains that can evolve from too many antibiotics given out. They wouldn't hear it. They thought that this was the way it's done in the United States and Europe, we're going to do it the same way here. Whereas we said, we're actually moving in the opposite direction, that we're moving into natural therapies because with these drug-resistant bacterial strains, that they're not dented by the antibiotics, that the natural forms of healing may be a better way to go. So I found that about a third to a half the people that came into the hospital had some sort of treatment previously with acupuncture, herbology, and so forth. It's part of the culture in the sense that herbs are quite more readily available and used. They use it in their foods as they treat for conditions. They wanted to embrace the surgery and the antibiotics more so than the traditional Chinese medicine. Their thought was, well, because it was developed here in China, there must not be any validity to it. It's always better when it's done by someone else in another foreign land. So, yeah, it turns out that traditional Chinese medicine is good enough for the home in China, but if you have to go see a doctor, you you want that good stuff. You want those <laughs> antibiotics. <laughs> and this is a frustration for infectious disease practitioners all around the planet. China is certainly one of the hotspots for antibiotic abuse, as well as the rest of Southeast Asia and India and Pakistan. Antibiotics can be purchased if you have the money. You just walk up to a pharmacist, you plunk down the thing, you point to a box on their rack, and you say, I want that. And I was very surprised to see in my last trip to India that they were asking for the name of a doctor to write down in their little book and said, which doctor gave this to you? And I I just went ahead and said my own name. I said, Dr. Nandipuram. And they didn't ask me what my name was, as in the customer. They just said, oh, yeah, Nadipuram. All right, cool. And they just wrote it down. They didn't ask for a physician identifier. But there is this terrible idea that all of a sudden there's this medication, and it's made in the West, and it doesn't matter which antibiotic, it's just some antibiotic. And I feel sick, and this will cure my ill, and it's made in the West, so it must be good. What, what it comes down to is, yeah, they want the, the Western approach because clearly it, it's obviously working for us. Look how well off <laughs> the average person is here. But they still use a lot of traditional Chinese medicine for preventative care. Well, you know, right. And that's something that came up a lot previously is that TCM has has us beaten when it comes to preventative care. That's something the Western model is only starting to really come to terms with. Yeah, they they have refinements in understanding of diet, exercise, and perhaps even more specific alterations of diet just by observation. Now, once again, the interventions that a lot of them talk about in terms of adding a particular herb or a food to your diet in order to reduce the risk of XYZ disease, it's really hard to study and compare and contrast because um, when they talk about a certain type of disease, we don't have an equivalent here in the United States of saying, oh, okay, they're talking about 
diabetes or hypertension. Um, they may have a different term for it altogether, or they may be speaking of a syndrome. I was watching a Chinese soap opera once. It was one of these historical, it, it takes place in the Tang Dynasty, you know, like a thousand years ago or, you know, centuries ago. It was about a, a traditional Chinese physician interviewing an emperor. So the emperor was coming down with some sort of illness. And the astute and observant Chinese practitioner started insulting the emperor, essentially <laughs> saying, <laughs> you are a fat slob. And look at the way you eat. You look like a pig and, you know, stuff like that. And the emperor got so upset that he started vomiting. And the traditional, the TCM doctor, after the emperor started vomiting, he said, well, you're welcome. Don't you feel better now? Because uh, you've been eating too much. That's your, that's the, that's been your problem all along. <laughs> that's some uh, bedside manner right there. That is you know, for those of you interested, that physician was Bian Che, uh, B-I-A-N space Q-U-E, uh, one of the legendary medical figures who we spoke of in the first episode. <laughs> That's a good way to do it. I, um, I mean, I, I don't know if it's terribly effective. I don't know that it would be embraced here in the West, but... Uh, I'd embrace it. <laughs> The point is, I mean, you know, the practitioners, traditional Chinese practitioners, do pay a lot of attention to diet and lifestyle. Well, I'm glad you brought up that story of a physician verbally needling his patient ward, because <laughs> I think it gives an excellent transition for us to start talking about what people came to listen to this episode for. They want to know about acupuncture. Yeah. How does it work? What does it look like? You know, can I create my own little Hellraiser from from the horror movies. So that's a solid transition by the way. <laughs> Credit what credits do. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I was quite proud of it. <laughs> so let's check back in with Dr. McNamee and learn how does acupuncture work? What does it look like? <laughs> so what can you tell me about acupuncture? All I really remember is that there's twelve channels of acupuncture points and these points have been discovered over the process of thousands of years. Great question. Um, the evolution of, a, of uh, acupuncture specifically, no one really knows how the first discovery of it began. Was it someone doing soft tissue work and massaging somebody and realized that, oh, when I pushed really hard on this area of the muscle, the person can feel a sensation going down the arm or leg or whatever? Or did certain pathology disappear like that headache went away when I pushed on a certain part of the shoulder or the head, the headache went away. What evolved over time was that certain specific points on the body that were similar from patient to patient were consistent and got the same response. And so if a patient presents with A, B, and C, and I push on points one, two, and three, the condition improved. There are 12 channels in the body that are described as the energy flows through these from one to the other. And if there's an interruption of the flow or if there's too much flow in one meridian, it will cause abnormalities. Person has uh, shoulder pain, right shoulder pain. Okay, is that from the shoulder directly? Or could this be from gallbladder or liver pathology that reflexes off the spine and reflects to the shoulder causing that pain? Well, if you 
acupuncture certain points on the shoulder or other meridians, it may influence the function of the liver and improve it. And the acupuncture winds up influencing the organ system itself. So we look at that as being a somatosomato reflex or visceral somato reflex. What we call referred nerve pain. Yep. Or, or it may not even be a pain issue. Uh, it could be just um, uh, affecting the organ system based on re reflexes. So you may not even have any pain involved, but you can affect the blood chemistry in the body based on stimulating certain acupuncture points. Now, a lot of the studies seem to show that acupuncture works. Nobody quite knows why, but a lot of the channels very often track along the same lines as nerve bundles. Right. The, the challenge I have with my medical colleagues is that they're very, very well educated in the world of pharmacology and surgery and don't know much about outside of what they're doing. I applaud you for your show you do here because it goes into areas that most medical practitioners would benefit from realizing and become humble that um, other systems and other approaches exist out there. And Asian Medicine, actually, University of California, Irvine, about five, seven years ago, did a very nice study where there is a research going on using a PET scan. Put a patient in the PET scan and stimulated a certain point on the uh, person's foot that was correlated with the optic center and vision. Stimulated the acupuncture point on the foot, and sure enough, the optic center of the brain lit up on the PET scan. Then went over and stimulated another point that was used for hearing classically. And sure enough, the hearing center of the brain lit up. So they thought, well, maybe if we put an acupuncture needle in anywhere in the body, it's going to affect the brain. Well, they tried off the meridians and nothing happened in the brain. So what they discovered was it was a reflex, again, from the point to the brain and they proceeded to apply for a NIH grant to look at now from the brain does that in turn affect the internal organs. As somebody who has friends with deep-seated fears of needles, would you recommend acupuncture for someone who maybe wasn't sure about it? How long are these needles? How deep do they go in? You know, is there any bleeding after? What does an acupuncture treatment look like? We have so corrupted our population by taking blood samples out of the index finger of a little kid as a pediatric patient that kids develop such phobia of needles and how it hurts that you have to really deal with them on a psychological level to get the patient to want to accept the idea of putting a needle into a body to help stimulate healing in the body itself. So by telling the patient and showing them here's a hypodermic needle and here's what an acupuncture needle looks side by side. You can take three or four acupuncture needles and put them into a hypodermic. They're about as thin as the hair on your head. They're made out of 304 surgical grade stainless steel. They are autoclaved and sterilized before they're used. They're a single use needle. Use them once, throw them out afterwards. And they're put in so quickly that most patients don't even feel the needles being inserted. You want to get a dull ache sensation in the area to stimulate the nervous system and thus the various physiology in the body and by doing so uh, the patient will sometimes comment that are the needles in yet and I'll say yes we've got 10 in right now 
are you doing fine? They says, that's it. I said, yes, now just rest and I'll come back in a little bit and take them out. As we're talking and I'm taking them out, we're chatting away and I'll say, okay, we're all done. They says, have you removed them yet? Yes, I have. They didn't even feel them, but yet they had the acupuncture done. And after that, they become your biggest advocate. So that's, that's what you've been waiting to hear, right? <laughs> And the needles are, they're small. They are not, you know, gigantic popsicle sticks. They are not even the length of, I don't know, Santosh, what would you say, what would you say the, the millimeter needles kind of look like? To it, to the first knuckle? The second? Uh, oh, the, the number of millimeters where it goes into the skin? I would say halfway to the knuckle. Um, if, uh, if he was talking about millimeters. From the from the fingertip about halfway to your first knuckle, deeper for for the for the gluteus maximus, because it is so maximus. Absolutely. <laughs> now, have either of you ever had acupuncture done before? I have not. I have not. It's fun, <laughs> um, and that's I I'm not kidding. I have I have had it done to myself. It has been done to my my family members you know we've all had it for various reasons and the sensation i always got was one of warmth not not like a oh i feel so wonderful and happy when the needle was in i wouldn't feel it being placed but i would feel this kind of dull warmth going on and he he does kind of get into that, but there the needles used to be way back in ancient days stone and then steel, and now they're sterilized metal. And as you heard him say, they're one use, so that's it. Don't, you don't have to worry as long as you're going to a reputable physician about repeat needles and concerns for HIV and hepatitis. Like these are as clean, if not cleaner, than needles at your standard tattoo parlor. And even smaller than those. Oh, much. Absolutely. Yeah. And with the success of the traditional acupuncture, of course, all the various alternative, to be generous, types of techniques have arisen, such as electroacupuncture, acupoint injection, magnetotherapy, which sounds like an X-Men <laughs> kind of thing. Sure. And laser irradiation as substitutions for traditional needles. And part of that is because here in the West, I think we have a very big needle phobia. Right. So, and, and he mentioned that, and I know, Santos, this was a, <laughs> a sore point <laughs> yeah. with you. It, it was a sticking point. Ha-ha! <laughs> okay. <Right>. So, <laughs> so, you know, he's talking about needle phobia that came from a lot of children in the way that they were handled by phlebotomy teams when I think you and I, Josh, were younger and certainly when Dr. McNamee was younger where the pediatric, I guess the hospital environment was very different. You'd have a wing in most places which had pediatrics but they would still see adult nurses and adult phlebotomists and you know there wasn't that kind of TLC that was taken nowadays. Nowadays, we have wonderful, wonderful child-based or pediatric phlebotomists, and 
you know, they they are much, much, much better than their adult counterparts, no offense. And we have people like Child Life who are wonderful, wonderful helpers um, who help stay the anxiety. So we're getting better at this, getting rid of needle phobia. So now that we know what an acupuncture treatment looks like and how it's performed, why don't we hear how you actually choose an acupuncture point and how deep the needle goes? So why don't we learn how an acupuncture point is chosen? Are there acupuncture points that are more dangerous to place needles than others? And how do you know where the danger points are and also how deep to insert the needle? The insertion of the needle, the selection of the needle, that's a lot of the art of what you do in healthcare. And I often say that we have all our laboratory tests, our history skills, our exam skills, imaging, all that is the science part of it, but there's a lot of art of what any practitioner does in putting together a treatment plan for a patient. You have the science as a foundation, but you have the art of what we do. So the points themselves are selected based on the practitioner's choice, based on what's presented to them and their findings. The areas of the body, how deep they go in, depends on how much tissue is in the area. For example, the buttock and low back area supports the body to stand up erect, usually has quite a bit of muscle mass there. Compare that to the scalp, which doesn't have much muscle mass, but still has some muscle there. So your insertion in the head may be a few millimeters, if that, in the buttock low back area for a normal adult with no atrophy, maybe, oh, half inch, inch, two inches, three inches, depending on where you're going and uh, how much tissue you have to get through. Because you have always, uh, American people tend to have a little more fat on them than the other, other populations around the world. So you may have to select different length needles depending. Tactfully phrased. <laughs> um, and if I recall correctly, the insertion technique itself is you almost just put your thumb and forefinger around the needle at the entry site and you're more straightening your fingers than actually pushing the needle in. When you tension the skin, it actually reduces any pain or sensation because it goes through very quick. Uh, I remember having a blood draw done at the hospital when you have to go through your annual physical exam when you do your rotations. And the phlebotomist there, who was very popular in the units, all the patients asked for this one phlebotomist to draw blood from them in the ICU. And he drew blood on me, but it didn't hurt. And I said, what was your technique that you did that without my feeling the insertion? He says, when you go through phlebotomy, they teach you to traction on the... He says, I traction both directions around the site because you tension the skin and it goes through quicker. Years later, I'm going through acupuncture school, and that's the same flying needle technique you're taught is using your fingers to traction both superior and inferior on it, tensions the skin, and it goes through very quick, and the patients don't feel it. I have to say, if nothing else, Asian medicine is so much better at naming things than Western. I love the idea of a flying needle technique. Very poetic, yes. <laughs> so, it sounds like it's very dependent on the actual condition that you learn from your history and physical, and then you choose meridians. The idea of meridians, I thought, was very fascinating. Ward, is this something that you know anything about 
and and pardon my racism, I'm asking because you're Chinese and this is a traditional <laughs> Chinese medicine episode. Well, no, it's it's. I don't think it's racist. I mean, I'm. I think I get a few extra points for you know being Chinese American. Uh, <laughs> on the other hand, I my favorite restaurant is Panda Express, so I think that docks a few points. <laughs> uh, I don't know. So, uh, anywho, so the meridians. I looked into it, and um, when I was in medical school, I've you know I've I've searched online and I've tried to correlate what meridians correspond to in Western medicine, and there just there isn't. There is actually, it's not a lymph system. It's not the blood vessel system. It's not the nervous system. It's it's its own system altogether, and. Um, I've tried to kind of make sense of it. Um, it's it's just you have to learn. It's a completely different map that you have to learn. Like the lung meridian, the large intestine meridian, the stomach meridian. They run through places that you wouldn't think of. Who would have thought that a lung meridian collateral would be in the wrist or palms, right? This is a point of contention here between East and West. And like you said, Ward, these are... Two different. This is a philosophical. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry, and some well less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Divide right here. And, you know, an evidence based medicine doctor in the West will say this is not at all studyable. We can't look at this. And nothing that we've discovered so far that would point any therapies in the West to this type of direction. It becomes so, so difficult from a Western standpoint and kind of a statistical and a rigorous type of research standpoint to really study meridians and acupressure and acupuncture that go with it. And this is where it becomes, you know, for the patient, for instance, what type of medicine they just trust. And so, so I'm going to reach in and and play devil's advocate a little bit here. Yeah. And again, I can I can do this because I've actually had some training in traditional Chinese medicine. Originally, there were only a handful of acupuncture points. There were about 25. And that was back in that time of the very first emperor, the Fuxi. And now there's over 400. But this has been a very gradual process. Sure. And each physician over time kind of learned, oh, well, this is it's, it's like we invented the periodic table. All those elements were there, but it took one brilliant person to kind of assemble them into a way that made sense. Now, for those of you who are unfamiliar with the term meridian, a meridian you can think of as lines of longitude and latitude on on your body, only instead of being direction, it's chi. So it's a collection of acupuncture points that run in a vertical line up and down your body and each meridian 
connects symptoms that are associated with a single one of these Zhang Fu organs. So you have a lung meridian, a heart meridian. I'm sure you've come across that Facebook article where if you have a headache, you're supposed to press a on the webbing in between your thumb and forefinger. Yeah, some of these correspond a lot with massage that's done in Ayurvedic practice. And some people will certainly say, oh yeah, you know, when I when I was massaged or acupuncture was given in, along a certain meridian, a different part of my body, which was completely disparate from the first part of the body, which was poked or, or massaged, felt better. And as we've already noted, it does work. Now, not everything works consistently enough for us to feel comfortable in the Western world signing off on it. Right. But there has been a lot of study that shows that we don't understand why it works or how it works, but we do see results. And it just so happens that a lot of these meridians, and I have a whole little scale model that I was taught to use with my acupuncture needles. So it is... It is a very large doll. Action figure. I mean, action figure. <laughs> of, so much action. That's right. Of a man with all of the significant meridians laid out and little points where you can practice placing needles in and out to get a feel for where on the body you would go. And there's certain ones that until you've reached a specific level of training and expertise, you're told to refer up to another practitioner. For example... Us as students, when we began our training, day one, you know, we didn't do anything on pigs or steaks. We went straight to the hospital, and these poor Chinese people had no idea that my very first needle was placed, you know, or my very first needle was placed into them by a student who had only learned about the theory that morning. But they were placed in meridian points where we couldn't cause any significant damage, things like the back and buttocks. Whereas to place for some of the brain and intestinal meridians, which are points on the face or points close to the center of the back near the spine, you know, there are even people who have been practicing for several years who are not comfortable or not allowed to use that degree because the Chinese physicians are aware of the anatomy and what lies near those meridians as well. Right. Now, are there and, pressure points along the meridians? Is that where you place the um, strategically place the needles? Because the the, uh, the that spot right before right between your thumb and index finger, I I was I was told that that's a pressure point. So the meridians do overlap, and there's chi wells, which are very similar to some of these pressure points, and. There's a lot of overlap between acupuncture and Twina. So why don't we talk a little bit about Twina itself and how it's different than acupuncture. And we'll, we'll jump over and listen very briefly to the art of Chinese massage. <laughs> Twina will mention just briefly that's... Is that similar to acupuncture but without needles? Is it massage? How is that different? There's a, a, several schools of Tuina, which is uh, referred to as Asian uh, massage. Everything from a term called Amo to Tuina runs a range of therapies. Everything from soft tissue, like effrelage, petrosage, to potment, that's used in um, soft tissue techniques 
to stretching to uh, more dynamic adjustments and gapping of the joint. So it depends on the training of the practitioner, what they've done, but that was part of the training that was there in China and some learn and use that in their practice. So a lot of pressure points do lie along the meridians and because of their location they may not be acupuncture points. They may not be designed for needles because you don't have to go that deep. You can just apply that pressure with it. And so professionals who choose to focus exclusively on just the pressure points rather than dealing with needles very often go into Twina, which is medical massage. Mm -hmm. And we, we went for one or two lessons and a heck of a lot of later massages because you walk out feeling boneless. Did they feel, now, after a Twina session, did you feel good or did you feel bad? I felt, I felt great. I had a positive outlook. All of my muscles felt relaxed. And I'm somebody who's very sensitive about people touching my feet and hands. Right. And these, these people managed to avoid doing that. And I still walked out feeling, you know, the best massage I've ever had in my life. Oh, terrific. Uh, so, but again, that's because there's, this is a lot more training than just what I think a typical masseuse in any other style would receive. And you feel good after a Thai massage or a sports or a Swedish or a deep knuckle. But those are all meant to relax the muscles, whereas Twina is actually another diagnostic treatment. Yes, it's a massage, but it's a massage that is meant to focus on specific points to help address maybe stomach upset or insomnia or various other modalities that could also be treated by acupuncture in a different setting. Cool. So that's kind of the two, two of the oldest of the traditional Chinese treatments as laid out in the, the Neijing. Uh, let's move on to another one that I, I have to be honest, I still don't know that I'm entirely sold on, but is one that is at least as old, and that's moxibustion. So before we talk to Dr. McNamee, Ward, do you know what moxibustion is? You're talking about lighting a piece of combustible material on, a, um, on an acupuncture needle once it's been inserted, right? Right. Well, you're not actually putting the, the combustible material on the needle, um, or at least not on the part of the needle that inserts I mean, on the back the of the needle. The, uh, yes. So it's... It's a very fancy kind of almost aromatherapy, but not really, because it's not the smell that's doing anything for you. But let's, let's hear about moxibustion from Dr. McNamee. Moxibustion is one of the Asian medicine approaches to heating up a local area. You can transmit heat through uh, conduction, convection, and radiation. So where, we, where we're going with this is that let's say you've got a cold area in the body and you can light a cigar stick sort of looking device. It is mugwort which is the bark of a tree and that's what actually burns. It burns at a constant low temperature. You can apply it as a cigar stick type uh, roll and hold it close to the acupuncture point that's cold and that heats up the area. In the same way when you go to a restaurant and they've got infrared lamps above that's radiation going in, they can feel the heat as it goes through. 
The other is if you have an acupuncture point there in the area to get it in deeper, you can place it on the acupuncture needle and by using conduction, it'll transmit down the needle at deeper layers of the body. So you can use ultrasound, diathermy, a hot pack, infrared, or you can use moxibustion, which again is a cigar looking type stick that burns at a constant low temperature. You can also place the moxa directly on the acupuncture point, uh, light the end of it, and then when the patient feels the uh, flash sensation, remove it from the skin, and you're also stimulating the acupuncture point without using a needle, but you're using uh, heat to stimulate the acupuncture point in that case. So it's small, either small controlled burns, or as you said, using a heat lamp like over a roast exactly. to make the skin easier. Now, again, from a Western standpoint, heating up an area will bring more blood to it. There's some ties to inflammation. Now, you commonly use moxibustion more by itself or in conjunction with acupuncture? That's an option for the practitioner. Uh, you can use it in conjunction with both. You can do acupuncture with the moxa. You can do moxa only. It's up to you as the practitioner which way you want to go. And it's always mugwort or are there other plants? The one I'm familiar with is mugwort. There may be others out there, but you do have, uh, mugwort actually has a lot of smoke to it. Uh, there's a other approach that you can use, what's called smokeless moxa, which burns at a constant low temperature, which can heat the area just like mugwort with moxa, but this uh, has less smoke. So when you're in a closed office, that's what practitioners tend to use is the smokeless moxa as compared to the very, very smoky moxa uh, mugwort. China does not have quite the same view of smoking that the West has come to adopt. So I, I imagine smokeless is probably a lot more common in the U.S. It depends least. whether you can open the windows of your office building or not. Uh, a story I like love to share is that uh, I used uh, moxa in the office. Closed building, windows wouldn't open, but it was a closed ventilation system with the other suites in the building. And every time I used it, the fire department would show up and walk through the building. And it wasn't after about the third time I realized that they were showing up because other people in the other suites, as it was coming down into their areas, they were smelling smoke but wasn't sure where it was coming from. So I moved over to the smokeless moxa at that point when two and two came together and realized, oh, <laughs> it's not going out of the building, it's going into the other suites. Until um, so it's just this moxa tree and there's something about this tree specifically it burns at a low temperature it does not create a significant amount of smoke although it creates enough smoke to apparently cause the fire department to show up at dr mcnamee's office that's a lot of smoke actually <laughs> <laughs> well it is when it's next to the ventilation system right Right. And that's when he switched to the smokeless moxa. So again, they, there is synthetic now. It's really meant to add additional heat. And we're going back to this concept of balance. If you're too cold, you need heat. If you're too hot, you need cold. Um, and it was used mostly in the clinics I saw people to treat arthritis and in some cases glaucoma. And the idea of hot smoke under the eyes may also be why I was not entirely sold mm. on the concept. Yeah, were they using weed as a <laughs> weed needles? Yeah, no, no, it's for my glaucoma. Oh, it's yeah. moxibustion. Nice <laughs> <laughs> uh, try. But again, if you're interested, I will include links to very, very brief videos of acupuncture, acupuncture, acupuncture moxibustion, and cupping from 
Oh gosh, looking at my my videos, these were taken about nine years ago. I'm I'm getting old. Uh, time flies. It does. It does. So let's move on to the next. And this one, again, may have some utility, may not. It's not greatly studied, but it is incredible fun to do. This was my all-time favorite, even more than acupuncture, was to practice cupping. So let's hear from Dr. McNamee, what is cupping and what is it used for? Cupping is one of the approaches that's used where you use a glass jar usually. Originally it was bamboo. You could use bamboo uh, cup. But the glass jar is used where you place a flame inside the cup itself into the um, cavity, heat up the air into it, and then place it on areas of the body that you want to have a physiological effect of blood vessel dilation and heating up the actual area. Much again the same way that we talked about with hot pack infrared, diathermy, and ultrasound. Uh, so you're heating up the area doing this. With the cooling of the air in the cup, it'll suck up the area of the skin within the rim of the uh, glass jar. That blood vessel dilation uh, can create uh, some capillaries that will expand and even break, creating a bruising of that area. So after the treatment, cups are removed. The patient then may have uh, circular marks on them as though an octopus actually leached onto their back or area of the body that they had the cupping done. And uh, it, it can look like, if you're not familiar with it, as though someone was beat with something circular. But after uh, seven to 10 days, it usually goes away and uh, it resolves quite nicely. What sort of conditions is cupping used for? From an Asian medicine standpoint, it's from anyone who has a cold condition in that area where you touch the body part and it may be cold to the touch that needs to be heated up. You can also use it for internal medicine, such as uh, someone who has a cold or flu. Uh, people will use it to help remove the, quote, pathogen that's there. Uh, and the physiological approach is that you're trying to increase blood flow, heat up the area, and that in turn affects the specific muscles in the area to increase blood flow and warm them up. Um. It sounds like a lot like moxibustion. I mean, it sounds like it's the same concept of getting rid of, you know, cold and restoring it balance. It does, but whereas I personally would worry about putting a needle and how far I was inserting it, or where I would have doubts about, well, what's this smoke, you know, waving smoke or putting just a warm needle over somebody doing, let me tell you, taking what is essentially a tiny little fishbowl and lighting a fire underneath to create a vacuum and you stick it on somebody and you turn and twist and seeing their skin bubble up, there's something oh so deeply satisfying. There might be a It's like creating your own bubble wrap. <laughs> there might be a sadistic side of um, Dr. Josh that, that, that this brought out. No, 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 it's not painful. It's just you get to turn people into giant bubble wrap things. Oh. Because uh, I had it done to me. This was something, this was one of the first things that they allowed us to do before they let us anywhere near needles. We all practiced cupping on each other. And that doesn't mean, you know, you just put your hands underneath somebody. <laughs> it meant we all laid on our stomachs and we were taught the technique and we all walked out looking like we had been on the losing end of a golf ball fight. But did it feel good? Because it did. 
It did. When you were underneath, when you had, it was a very strange sensation to feel a little bubble of your skin, and not like a tiny bubble, but like a big fist-sized bubble of your skin being pulled up. And what would happen is you would feel sort of a, a pull, which would be releasing tension, followed by an ache, and you would know when it was time to take the cup off because that ache would turn from a a soreness into an uncomfortable, would start to actually become painful, and that would actually be the signal that it was the vacuum was on long enough, mm-hmm. and this is a vacuum in the absence of air, not a vacuum as in a hoover. And at that point, the practitioner would come and with a quick twist of the wrist, release the vacuum, and you'd hear the like a great sound effect, and you'd feel all that tension that was in the, that had slowly built up in the area and you didn't even know was there quickly drain out. So I personally, I love cupping. And the idea, unlike moxibustion, again, they both serve to draw blood, but think about it. If you have an area, and the best I can explain this physiologically, if you have, say, an area of inflammation, well, what is that? That is your body trying to bring more blood, more immune components, more of all the things your body uses to fight infection and inflammation into one area. So when we have a cellulitis or a skin infection, that's why you see that one part get red. Your body's trying to bring all the things it carries in the blood and focus them in that area. Mm. So cupping basically says rather than let your body decide, we're going to create a vacuum and pull more blood and more heat into this one area. And when you combine that with the meridians and the Zhang Fu organs and the five elements, they're using the diagnostic system that says, okay, we need treatment here. Pull the blood with all its natural defenses to this area. Yeah, conceptually, it makes sense. I mean, we do that in, you know, Western medicine where we, we hot compresses for abscesses, for example. Moving on into pharmacology, but specifically herbal medicine. Uh, now, you, you grew up at least a significant portion of your early years in China, correct? Yes. And was it in Beijing or, or do I have Oh, that, that was in Shanghai. Oh, it was in Shanghai. Uh-huh. Okay, so during your childhood, did you ever have the opportunity or occasion to go into a Chinese pharmacy? I did, and um, that was, okay, so when I grew up, that was back in the, um, you know, I I left China in 1990, it was in 91, so back then, they didn't have these, they, they didn't have these combined pharmacies where they have, you know, traditional Chinese and um, Western all in one. So, like, Chinese herbal pharmacies were Chinese herbal pharmacies. It, you walk in, and it's, it smells. The first thing that hits you is that smell. You walk in, and they have, they have these little little drawers, little fi- filing little, like, these little tiny little filing cabinet systems of um, different herbs all, like, all in a, um, all arranged it's a different feel. You walk in and you just smell the pungency of all these herbs. And it's, it's not a bad smell, but it's, you definitely smell, it smells woody but it's and a unique. grassy. Yeah, it's, that's the only way I can describe it. It smells woody and grassy. Yeah, which looks very different from, say, your average CVS or Walgreens. Now, what kind of things were you sent to? Is, you know, did your mom make you the equivalent of matzo ball soup when you were sick for the Chinese pharmacy? Or what, if you don't mind sharing... What would you be sent to these pharmacies for? So I think it depends on... So 
traditional herbal Chinese medicine pharmacies, like these traditional pharmacies, I think that's more for pretty hardcore stuff. That you need a practitioner to send you with a recipe. You know, they, they write down three parts of this, four parts of that, I have a newt, you know, whatever it is. And then <laughs> yeah, you come back with that. See, you joke, but I have newt could be a legitimate thing found in a Chinese pharmacy. Yeah, exactly. Just like the pharmacist here who is trained and has expertise in all the ingredients, the, um, the pharmacist at a Chinese traditional herbal pharmacy has extensive knowledge of how many parts of what to use in a certain recipe or a certain concoction. So my mom, in other words, my mom would not just send me to the uh, pharmacy to say, hey, you know what, get a chicken and, you know, come back with a matzo ball soup uh, ingredient. Sure. That you just go to the supermarket or, you know, the uh, the traditional markets. Um, but we go to the pharmacy with a specific recipe or a specific concoction written down, and they would actually measure out little parts of this and that and give it to you in a specific, you know, package. Okay, so let's hear from Dr. McNamee, uh, somebody who didn't have the the opportunity of growing up in this culture the way you did, what he thinks you would see in a pharmacy and how how herbs are chosen and given. Can you take us through a trip in a Chinese pharmacy? What are some common things we'd expect to see? One of the things that struck me first when I first entered uh, a herbal pharmacy both uh, here in the United States as well as China, is the smell. You will smell the herbs in their natural form. Herbs will be everything from plants to minerals to animal parts. All those come together because each of those have certain uh, chemistry attached to them that make them up. So when you walk into an herbal pharmacy, you may see some of the turtle shells. Or you may see leaves or twigs or things of that nature and over time uh, by boiling these herbs it releases the biochemistry within and the person then drinks the tincture the liquid that was boiled out and that in turn again is the biochemistry that's being released from these plants animals and minerals so when you walk into a herbal pharmacy you have the smell you have the images of various animals that are around, the plants, the rocks, and so forth. And they're usually kept in containers. And then as you have your prescription filled, it's just like any pharmacy. They walk over, pull out what you need, put it into a container, and you walk out with it afterwards and boil it at home and drink the uh, liquid that has already released the chemistry. So it's everything is tea-based. There's no soups. There's no you sprinkle this on your food. There's no enemas. There's a couple ways of, of applying herbs. One is that you could take the actual plant, animal, and mineral and uh, grind it up and do it as an oral capsule that you can consume and it goes in through your digestive tract. Again, you've got a 20-30% absorption rate there and uh, gets absorbed that way. Another is you can boil the herbs in a liquid form, uh, remove the herbs itself, drink the liquid. Again, through the oral cavity is another way of doing it. Some actually can do injections of some of the herbs into the body, into the uh, muscles, another approach. Uh, but more often than not, it's either capsules that you can, uh, or tablets that you can consume, or it's uh, done through liquid, through boiling the herbs after a certain period of time. It cools and you drink the uh, liquid. Yeah, so it's, it's a little bit different than 
the drugs we use, but part of that is because these plants are used in their in their natural forms. And when he's talking about refining and synthesizing drugs, think about when we were in Peru, Ward, and mm -hmm. we were chewing the coca leaf like candy, and it was totally fine because it helped with headache, it helped with great... And co the coca leaf is not necessarily dangerous. Right. But when you purify it and you find that one particular ingredient in it that has the active effect, cocaine is not something you want to muck about with. Right. Um, but in its normal plant form, it's not harmless, but it doesn't have nearly the potential for harm. And I think that's the idea he's trying to convey is that each of these herbs have many, many properties and it takes a knowledge of their overall ones and you want to combine them. And I found it interesting that almost all of them are basically put into teas or soups. Uh, you don't really, you don't chew them, you don't burn them. Everything is made into a tea and maybe that's why we have all those stereotypes about you know all the tea in China because right. that was their pharmacy. Well, these teas usually taste terrible. Like I've, <laughs> I haven't, I haven't had. You think pills? It's, I mean, you know that's why you know Western medicine we do pills because it's a lot easier to take and it's easier for your for your patients. But you would literally take the ingredients that your you know practitioner prescribed you and that you got from the uh, from the herbal pharmacy, and you would have to put that little packet into, you know, boiling water usually, and you would boil it for, I don't know, sometimes up to hours just to want, make that one one dose, one potion. So let's talk very briefly about just the general, the general idea behind some of these herb compounds. And, you know, the Chinese pharmacopoeia is extensive and impossible to describe in one, two, or even six episodes. So I think we'll just break it down by taste. Um, now, you mentioned bitter, and bitter herbs are the biggest category by far. And it's usually meant to serve, according to the textbook, a drying or detoxifying quality. Uh, so something for yin deficiency. But because the bitterness and the way they describe it in the textbook is that because bitterness descends, you want to beware this quality in pregnant women as the fetus could be encouraged to descend as well, which I think is interesting because you look at a lot of bitter type things and that's our body's signal that something is poisonous and especially not good for pregnant women where it could be transferred sure. to the fetus. Yeah. So again, it's a different a different function, whereas sweet herbs uh, are used, they're, they're found to be sticky. Um, you know, think of honeycomb, mm -hmm. and an herb which is sweet can promote urination. Well, honeycomb could do that, I guess, from the sugar alone. Right. Um, it can also promote fluids, uh, whereas then there's pungent herbs, which according to our resource, say, are used for moving chi, Meaning that your body's chi will say, "Oh, this this stinks. Let's get away from it." And a pungent herb may be applied as a salve rather than as a tea. Right. So you mash this up and you put it on the specific area where you want the chi to move away from. Um, and exercise also creates warmth. So you want to sometimes apply this salve to an area and then move around, and that gets both your blood and your chi flowing. Huh. It's, it's very interesting that there are a lot of parallels between 
herb styles and things like that. Just like we say, okay, well, we have cephalosporins for antibiotics, and we have steroids, and we have this. They say, well, we've got hot herbs and bland and sticky and sweet and aromatic. So more than I think I could ever hope to understand in a lifetime of studying, but it's interesting at how many parallels there may be with Western medicine. If if none of you have ever had the opportunity to go into a, a Chinese pharmacy, they are even in Chinatowns. You don't have to travel all the way all the way to the mainland just to see it. So do yourself a favor next time you're in your closest Chinatown. Go check it out. You'll be very surprised and it's fun just to look around and talk to the pharmacist and they're very knowledgeable and ask, what is this used for? How about this? That kind of wraps up our our overall episode on all these different ones, but let's get a few last questions in with Dr. McNamee and have him give us maybe some examples of traditional diagnoses and treatments with traditional Chinese medicine and maybe even some resources about where people can go if they have any further questions. So of all the different things we've touched on very briefly today, if somebody wanted to learn more, what are resources you would recommend them to look into? One of the best books that's out there that I've seen over time is called The Web That Has No Weaver by Ted Kupchak. In the first several chapters, he'll walk you through on how the paradigm was developed, but how the paradigm parallels what we see in Western medicine, and that many times they arrive at the same answer, but using different paths to get to that goal. So you've been in practice for a number of years, certainly since before I even made it into med school. What kind of treatments do you offer in your office from a traditional Chinese medicine standpoint? In my office, because I'm trained in several areas, everything from pain control, rehab, physical therapy, chiropractic, acupuncture, herbology. Um, from an Asian medicine perspective, I offer acupuncture, moxibustion, herbology, cupping. There's an overlap with other fields, such as behavior lifestyle changes, doing the right things, getting enough rest, exercise, diet changes. So those are the approaches I use from the Asian medicine perspective. There's much more to, the, to it than that, everything from Tai Chi, Qigong, which I don't offer here, but can send out to practitioners who do teach that. Stop again. Thank you so much for all the information you've provided on traditional Chinese medicine. If people want to contact you or find things out, where can they find you out in the world? What, what sort of things are you doing? They, they can now find me on the website at uh, www.CaliforniaHealthInstitute.com. That's my website. Uh, they can reach me in uh, my practice in Woodland Hills or in Thousand Oaks, uh, 805-777-7474 or 818-999-4747. Once again, we'd like to that that wraps up this episode on traditional Chinese medicine. Hopefully you all learned something and it's worth exploring and learning a little bit more about. Special thanks to Dr. Kevin McNamee for all his assistance and time in talking with us about this. As always, we love to hear your comments your questions, your concerns, and you can reach us on Facebook, on Twitter, 
and on our webpage, of which the links are all included below in the show notes. We would absolutely, if you've ever had experience of Chinese medicine or if we've brought up any questions, send them over and we will do our best to answer. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. And Ward, is there anything else that we're leaving out? Mm, oh, please rate us on iTunes. Um, if, um, give us feedback and uh, we do read them and uh, it helps boost our um, standing on iTunes. That's right. The more of you who rate the show, the easier it will be for everyone else to find. So please give us your stars, even one star. I'd prefer five, but any rating will help. Right. So that wraps it up. And until next time, as always, happy, happy travels. travels. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.